0: Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. President Joe Biden has set an ambitious clean energy and environmental agenda that includes a $2 trillion infrastructure and climate plan and a renewed commitment to the Paris Climate Agreement. To achieve his climate goals, Biden will likely rely on regulatory agencies such as the EPA, to craft rules to limit the climate impact of the country's energy, transportation, and related industries. Yet Biden's need for new climate-focused rules arguably couldn't come at a more inopportune time. New regulations often face legal challenge in the nation's courts. The most prominent of those courts, the Supreme Court, has turned increasingly conservative and many legal experts expected to be generally less supportive of environmental regulations argued before it. On today's podcast, we'll explore the challenge that a conservative Supreme Court may pose for President Biden's clean energy and climate agenda. We'll also take a look at how the legal philosophies of the court's newest members may guide their decisions on climate-related issues. Today's guest is Carrie Colonisi. Director of the Penn Program on Regulation at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Kerry has served as a consultant in the past to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Transportation. Kerry, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, glad to be here, Andy. So Kerry, it's April of 2021, and President Biden has just released his $2 trillion legislative agenda on infrastructure and climate change. Now, nevertheless, it's pretty sure that not all of Biden's work on climate will go through the legislative process, meaning Congress. So that said, can you put into perspective the role that regulation and regulatory agencies like the EPA are likely to play in the president's effort to address climate and energy concerns?
1: Sure. The, uh, the president has uh, announced and is pursuing what he calls an all-in government approach to climate change and it, it it basically that means that he's looking for every possible lever that can be used to deal with the problem of climate change and that you know has a number of different dimensions to it obviously we're dealing with a global pollutant and a global uh, environmental problem so international action is needed, and the U.S. rejoining the Paris uh, Climate Accords is, is an example of an international action the Biden administration is taking. But there's an, also a domestic dimension. Uh, what, what do we do in the U.S.? And then with respect to what's going on in the U.S., got to, we have to keep in mind that there's both mitigation efforts to reduce the release of greenhouse gas emissions and then there's a host of actions to take on adaptation or resilience as well. And then there's actions, as you say, that Congress can take versus agencies. And then there's uh, actions that involve spending money, subsidizing versus regulating. And yes, uh, that last category, regulation, which will be uh, possibly pursued by Congress. Uh, That's something that can happen. But if Congress is unable to adopt new regulatory limits on uh, greenhouse gas emissions, then uh, most of the regulatory action will be done within the agencies, whether it's uh, various uh, energy efficiency standards out of the Department of of Energy or uh, uh, various uh, emissions limits uh, and the like out of the Environmental Protection Agency. It's a portfolio approach. And so uh, regulatory levers are going to be an important part of the overall agenda in the Biden administration. But, you know, we probably can't meet the kind of uh, emissions reductions uh Needed just through regulation alone, so so that's why the administration has taken this more all-in government approach.
0: Now, here's here's kind of a historical fact that, that aggressive environmental regulations like those that we might expect to see out of the Biden administration frequently face legal challenge in the nation's courts. Uh, historically, to what degree has the Supreme Court, in particular? Been accommodative of environmental regulations.
1: Well, I think uh, the Supreme Court uh, obviously is 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 critical as the highest court and and the ultimate arbiter of the lower courts. Uh, the uh, track record of the Supreme Court has largely, I would say, been deferential to environmental regulations in large part because. These regulations have been, uh, you know, authorized by Congress uh, during the 1970s, what's often thought of as the environmental law decade in uh, in the United States. Uh, we've had, you know, a dozen or more major environmental statutes adopted by Congress, which contain within them uh, authorization, sometimes even mandates that EPA adopt regulations. And so, uh, the courts, uh, are charged with applying the law that Congress has, has adopted. And when we have a, a, a large body of, of environmental statutes, then, uh, the courts have, have certainly, uh, by and large, uh, been, uh, been rather deferential. Now, that's not to say that there hasn't been uh, uh, challenges and, and obstacles uh, you know, it it for, you know, many of the most uh, significant uh, environmental regulations over the years, uh, you know, courts have figured in in one way or another. But, you know, the other thing is that, and this follows from a, a recent article uh, that I published uh, with uh, Dan Walters of Penn State University, we looked back at 50 years of EPA rulemakings in the courts and found that, you know, there's been a striking continuity over the years that, you know, the federal government ultimately prevails. And even in the case uh, where they don't, research indicates that the EPA is able often to go back and... uh, have a essentially a redo and uh, re-implement uh, regulations that that courts initially uh, disapproved in some fashion so uh, historically uh the Supreme court uh, has been rather deferential to agency action in general and to epa action but in large part that's because the statutes have have really you know, authorized and, and even Provided the impetus for that regulation that EPA has conducted the challenge and the interesting you know questions in the climate area uh, arise because we don't have a dedicated uh, squarely uh, targeted piece of federal legislation devoted you know directly to and very clearly to uh, the climate uh, type of problem.
0: That's interesting. I wrote, I read that that paper. Very interesting. And, and one thing that you did point out again is that the courts have generally been deferential uh, to the agencies, um, uh, but during the Trump administration, that uh, that changed a bit. Is that correct?
1: Well, yes. I mean, the uh, the courts did uh, you know disapprove a good number of actions that the Trump administration took. And I I guess I have to probably elaborate and clarify a little bit when I say the courts have been somewhat deferential. In the end of the day, uh, EPA has been able to prevail in um, much of the litigation that has been filed challenging its rules. But that's largely because uh, EPA has done its homework over the years, and it's made sure that it follows proper administrative procedures, which are required by law. It has uh, made a considerable investment in policy analysis and economic analysis and scientific analysis to make sure that its rules are well-grounded in evidence. It's done its homework. Uh, One of the issues that arose during the Trump administration is when the courts looked at what E.P. had done, uh, a lot of the work that the agency had done under the Trump administration had been rather slipshod and uh, so it's not so surprising that uh, courts uh, did reject certain actions taken by EPA during the uh, the Trump years uh, and you know one thing we know generally is that the Trump administration had a harder time filling positions certainly at EPA there was a scandal I think you and I spoke on a podcast uh, about Scott Pruitt and the scandals surrounding the EPA uh, in the early years of the Trump administration for example and it took quite a while before the agency kind of I think recovered from that developed uh, work patterns that uh, developed uh, you know a solid a more solid at least record for what they were what they were doing, uh, and a lot of the a lot of the major actions uh, taken by the Trump EPA uh, that under uh, administrative Wheeler were uh, were issued in the in the latter part of the administration and still uh, pending review in the courts. So uh, uh, overall, uh, you know, the courts have uh, expected agencies to do their homework. Uh, when EPA has done it and done it well, uh, the courts have looked uh, favor- generally uh, favorably on, uh, on what the agency has done, uh, obviously scrutinizing it, and that's one of the reasons why EPA has over the years uh, uh, done its homework because uh, they anticipate that uh, anything uh, that they produce might end up in court, and so they want to make sure the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. So let's go ahead
0: and put this into perspective. Uh, As you mentioned, the Supreme Court has generally been accommodative of regulations out of the executive agencies, such as the EPA. But today we have a situation where we've got a new president who's vowed to be quite aggressive on the climate, clean energy front. Is going to use regulation to get some of his, his agenda through. Uh, But at the same time, he's now facing a Supreme Court which is more conservative than any Supreme Court in recent memory. Uh, It's got a 6-3 conservative majority. That's up from a recent 5-4 majority, which we had for quite a number of years. How much does this 6-3 majority add to the potential power and barriers that the uh, Supreme Court might uh, pose to Biden's agenda?
1: Well, it's a matter of numbers. You need uh, a majority to, uh, uh, you know, decide a case on the Supreme Court, and uh, when the court had a just a five-four conservative majority, uh, Justice Kennedy could, in many cases, in, and this is probably even more true outside of the environmental realm, served as a swing uh, justice. Uh, but we also know, for example, that, uh, you know, in other pivotal cases, such as uh, when the Affordable Care Act went to the Supreme Court, Justice Roberts uh, provided a, a pivot point, a, a, you know, governor or control or limitation, if you will, on the on the conservatives power. If uh, he was uh, willing to, uh, uh, you know, take a, a, a different kind of a more moderate position uh, that you know that said uh, under the uh, uh, under the old Supreme Court with five to four majority, uh, there uh, was some indication that even in the, uh, the latter part of the Obama administration, that the court was going, the Supreme Court was going to scrutinize climate regulation much more carefully. So uh, four days before Justice Scalia uh, died. Uh, the court handed down a stay, which is uh, an interim halt, uh, if, if you will, on an EPA rulemaking dealing with climate issues, the Clean Power Plan. In fact, that was in some sense the signature regulation of climate matters under the Obama administration. And the court in February 2016 uh, Halted the implementation of that regulation pending uh, further review in the courts. Now, it was an initial sort of preliminary decision, but it was striking because it was unprecedented. Unprecedented that the Supreme Court would put a halt to an agency rule when the lower courts, which were still hearing the, the legal challenges to the Clean Power Plan, had actually declined to put a halt on the rule. And and, and what's the implications of that? Well, there was a requirement under the Clean Power Plan that states start to develop plans to uh, put some limits on uh, electric utility uh, carbon emissions. Uh, And uh, if you halt that, basically... It, it means the states didn't have any, any obligation to get working on those plans until the courts actually settled uh, the, the legal issues. So it was an unprecedented decision for the Supreme Court to step in and put a halt pending litigation on uh, a, a regulation when the lower courts didn't even see a need to put a halt on it. And it, and And not only was it unprecedented, but I think it was a clear signal that... majority on the Supreme Court had some issues with the Clean Power Plan and uh, were likely not to look too favorably on it uh, if the the rule ever reached the court for decision. Now, it didn't because uh, something else happened in 2016, an election, and uh, uh, President Trump uh, came in office and his uh, EPA uh, withdrew the Clean Power Plan, replaced it with uh, you know a, a new uh, rule dealing with uh, emissions from uh, electric utilities, and uh, uh, that itself uh, it has been under challenge. And I think what we'll likely see is the Biden administration, you know, revisiting the the Trump rule, and uh, probably not. I, I would be surprised if they just reinstate the clean power plan uh you know there may be a little different in certain respects there were some legal vulnerabilities that the clean power plan had and uh, if if a majority uh of the court at in february 2016 was suspicious of the clean power plan uh and issued that stay well uh, i think the biden administration uh, is smart enough to know that if they just reinstated the clean power plan as it was now with a six to three majority, uh, they're not likely to get a more favorable airing at the Supreme Court. You now it remains to be seen exactly how the current six to three uh, court will rule on some uh, of these regulatory matters. Uh, you know, it, it, there, again, if there's. Strong. Those are new justices, it, right? Those, they're they're new relative. justices, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So we have, you know, uh, Justice Scalia having been replaced by Justice Gorsuch, uh, Justice Kennedy having been replaced by Justice Kavanaugh, and then uh, the late uh, Justice Ginsburg being uh, replaced most recently by Judge Coney Barrett. Uh, we do know that, uh, you know, from the judicial record that. Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh have taken uh, some positions uh, that would have some uh, serious uh, implications for the state of administrative law, uh, the law that governs what agencies like EPA does. Uh, Justice uh, Coney Barrett, uh, a little bit less sure. Obviously, she is uh, 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 someone who is a, a, a protege of Justice Scalia, but we don't know whether she's more like the earlier Justice Scalia, who uh, was accommodating to the administrative state and to agencies like EPA in many ways, or more like. Uh, a more skeptical uh, Justice Scalia in the years uh, shortly before his death, where she, uh, perhaps she would be much more aligned with uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh in some of their skepticism of the administrative state. So, it, it, you know, it's a bit of a wild card, but certainly uh, 6-3 uh, from the standpoint of, of environmental regulation is qualitatively different than a 5-4 court, uh, again, because uh, now uh, you know, one justice uh, has a little bit less sway uh, than than may have had in the in the past.
0: You don't get that obvious swing vote in the same way that you have a right. five four court. Right, yeah, so exactly. Before- before going forward here, I just want to, to to swing back to something you mentioned. You mentioned the Supreme Court and the stay of the Clean Power Plan, which mm-hmm. was unprecedented. It hadn't even been decided yet by the, the lower court. So, you know, Trump made over 230 appointments to courts uh, during his mm-hmm. presidency, courts around the country. Do these other courts or are there other specific courts beyond the Supreme Court that we should really be thinking about as well that, that may be, um, you know— um, Important, you know, to the to the regulatory agenda of the, of the Biden administration.
1: Sure, I mean, listen, the Supreme Court is, you know, nine justices, and they hear, you know, uh, between seventy five, a hundred cases, perhaps in a given year, uh, and there's, uh, you know, uh, four thousand regulations that the federal government roughly is issuing in any given year epa uh, issuing hundreds of regulations now you know they these don't all get challenged in court most of them don't most of them are not uh you know terribly uh controversial uh but uh, but but certainly you know if not all the all the cases can get decided by the supreme court then uh you know, the lower courts and and their decisions become the final say if the Supreme Court's not taking up those cases. So certainly that matters a lot. You also should keep in mind that there's, uh, in recent years, a very active litigation strategy being pursued by state attorney generals. And the states are roughly split uh, with about half of the states uh, having Republican attorney generals, and the other half of the states being uh, uh, having a, a, a Democratic attorney generals, and the uh, the reality is that you know these attorney generals are willing now to uh, to pursue uh, litigation, whether you know it was the Democratic attorney generals uh, banding together to challenge the rules issued by the Trump administration, or what would be likely now the Republican attorney generals coming together to challenge rules of the Biden administration. And that's in addition, of course, to industry groups, environmental groups who have long long been active litigants challenging EPA rules. So the lower courts is where a lot of the decisions are made. Certainly, uh, they're not final if the Supreme Court wants to take up a case, but the Supreme Court doesn't take them up uh, all that often. And, uh, and if nothing else, that litigation, those lower courts is important going forward just for the biden administration to realize that it can delay things uh, so uh, it can take you know a year two years perhaps uh, to uh, to have a, a case litigated now it doesn't it usually uh, occur it uh, should be noted that it doesn't usually require that uh, this kind of litigation go through what we would see in in most civil disputes a trial first with a jury or anything like that and then an appeal most of the, the environmental regulatory disputes will go directly to the court of appeals and be decided Such there the, the dc circuit it, um, and then the dc circuit is indeed the, the uh, uh the the court that has what we call mandatory venue that is you have to go there under many environmental statutes uh, when you're challenging nationally applicable regulations, and uh, uh, so the the D.C. Circuit ends up deciding an awful lot of uh, challenges to EPA regulations, and the composition of that court has certainly shifted, and, uh, and 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 some people even call that sometimes the second highest court in the country. <laughs>
0: So let's jump in for a moment to some of the kind of the the background here, the regulatory background, um, the framework, let's put it that way. So the Clean Air Act of 1970 is the legal foundation for much of the environmental regulation that has taken place over the past 50 years. Can you explain the importance of the Clean Air Act to climate-related rulemaking and why interpretation of the Clean Air Act has become, in particular, a flashpoint around environmental regulation.
1: Well, uh, you know, the Clean Air Act, as you said, was uh, adopted in 1970. There were certainly indications uh, and concerns about climate change present even at that time. In fact, there's some congressional hearings uh, prior to nineteen seventy focused on on climate change it 's somewhat surprising because we think about public awareness of climate change as being a much more recent phenomenon but it is also fair to say that uh climate concerns were not really uh, the principal uh, problem animating the uh, the design and and passage of the Clean Air act in nineteen seventy so much so that the way the The whole act is structured, in many respects, doesn't really fit the climate problem. Mm. Uh, The way the the act primarily targets air pollution and air, air quality issues is to start with a set of nationally ambient air quality standards. How much pollution can be in the ambient air that we breathe, and then calls upon states to develop plans to uh, reduce that pollution, and those plans uh, have to bring the quality of air within a state into attainment with these National Ambient Air Quality Standards. That works fine for particulates. It can work fine for a lot of traditional air pollutants. But when you have a, a, a problem of globally mixed air pollutants, like greenhouse gases, it's not clear that uh, Pennsylvania reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions from within its borders will do a whole lot to the amount of carbon dioxide that's building up in the upper atmosphere above Pennsylvania. It's a globally mixed pollutant. It goes up into the atmosphere and mixes. Other countries, this is why it's a global problem, right? So the Clean Air Act really, structurally, its basic structure about having these ambient air quality standards set at the national level and then have states come up with ways to get the air quality within their borders just doesn't really fit with the climate problem. That said, the way that the statute is written in some parts... Uh, particularly with respect to uh, automobile emissions, uh, does suggest that EPA uh, has an obligation to uh, address uh, climate-changing pollution. And in fact, during the second Bush administration, the case went to the Supreme Court on the very issue. The Bush administration had declined to adopt Uh, automobile emission standards, and when it declined to do that, uh, states and environmental groups went to court, and in a decision called Massachusetts versus EPA, the Supreme Court had to decide, does the automobile emissions provisions, which are a little different than these ambient air quality standards, the automobile provisions give the national EPA the primary authority to regulate automobile emissions, with one exception, known as the California waiver, because California had uh, auto emission standards uh, in place uh, before the adoption of the Clean Air Act. Uh, in any event, in Massachusetts versus EPA, the Supreme Court said, no, when we look at the way the statute is written with respect to these automobile emissions, uh, you know, EPA, you cannot just dis- decline to go forward. Uh, and and regulate these emissions, you have to do it. So Massachusetts versus EPA really put the EPA in the business of dealing with climate change, but primarily through automobile emissions. Now, uh, what was creative, uh, if you will, uh, in the Obama administration was uh, the EPA took the position that since it had to regulate uh, automobile emissions and did pursue those standards, the uh, Uh, the agency also could exploit a provision called Section 111D, which allows it to set performance standards for certain kinds of stationary sources, and they targeted uh, electric utilities under the Clean Power Plan. But there were aspects of the Clean Power Plan that also didn't quite fit, at least super clearly, uh, with the uh, terms of of, of Section One Eleven D under the under the Clean Air Act. Ultimately, you've got you know a, a modern day global pollution problem that's that EPA has been trying to use you know an antiquated fifty year old statute uh, to address, and that then inevitably, I think, creates legal questions and uncertainties that put things into the courts. So that's why I think you see, as you put it, uh, the Clean Air Act becoming a flashpoint uh, for controversy, uh, because it's just not always exactly clear how the EPA should go forward to deal with this modern problem under an older statute.
0: So, so again, to restate that, so the, the conflict, is, if I understand correctly here, is that the Clean Air Act was not written primarily with climate change in mind. It has been, uh, you know, through Massachusetts versus the EPA in in, uh, in 2007. There's, there's a way has been opened for it to be applied, but I, I think if I understand correctly, today some people are saying that, well, don't don't get too liberal with it, right? Don't use it in too many different instances, such as stationary power. Which was the real issue under the under the Clean Power Plan, if I understand correctly? What are its limits? Where is it applicable, and what is going beyond the boundaries of what the Clean Air Act was was meant to do?
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah, uh, you've got uh, you know the need to uh, have the agency adapt and and solve a new problem uh, under provisions that just you know when Congress was creating it was not really thinking about that problem directly and created a statutory structure that fits much better to localized pollution problems than to global uh, uh, climate change.
0: So here is where the issue comes to in head, right? So it's how is all this gonna be interpreted moving forward, okay? So the the next question I wanna ask you then is, is what is the basic conservative legal ideology that might, you know, post most problems for Biden's presumed regulatory agenda. What is it about uh, the the ideology that can uh, be more prone to limit interpretation in the extent of, say, the clean air acts reach into the problem of climate change?
1: Well, you know, from the standpoint of a conservative legal interpretation, there's a great deal of emphasis uh, in recent years on originalism and wanting to uh, take legal approaches, especially on matters of constitutional law, that accord with uh, what judges today might say were the uh, original intentions of the framers of the Constitution. and. When one looks at the Constitution, uh, you see Article I, which gives powers to Congress, Article II, which gives powers to uh, the president, uh, executive powers to the president, and Article Three, uh, with uh, judicial powers to the Supreme Court and a court system uh, that uh, can be created underneath uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, so we have uh, legislative, executive, judicial branches of government. Where does this... Uh, uh, power uh, rest for agencies like EPA to be creating rules. Now if EPA were just enforcing rules, that would be clearly executive, and that could fit uh, well under this uh, you know, three-part structure of government in the executive branch. And, and EPA does enforce rules. So they do do some in executive uh, power, but, but when it comes to creating rules, the conservative uh, jurist will say that looks a lot like legislating. Isn't that what Congress is supposed to be doing?
0: Meaning that the, and, the agency is trying to do something that wasn't explicit in the original rule from Congress, is that a, a, a statute well, from Congress?
1: Well, you know, even the, the question arises, and there's a, a, a legal doctrine that's somewhat... Uh, Antiquated. Maybe some have even said uh, has been uh, more existent in theory than in practice. Called the non-delegation doctrine that would provide a constitutional limit on Congress's ability to give rulemaking authority to an agency like EPA. Uh, Even, even in, in other words, even if an agency says, "Oh, you know." I can do this because Congress authorized us to do this. The, uh, the, the conservative uh, legal ideology might uh, say, that, "Wait a minute! There's a higher law, the Constitution, that places a limit on Congress's ability to transfer legislative powers, rulemaking powers, to agencies." And so there is a concern uh, animating, uh, you know, much of uh, of, of of the you know, contemporary legal discourse about regulation broadly and environmental regulations specifically uh, about how much Congress uh, has, has given over too much power, more power than they, they, they really should or could under the constitutional framework to administrative agencies. Uh, some would say that the administrative state that we have today, to the extent that it allows agencies to make laws uh, is in contravention of that originalist uh, viewpoint uh, that that the legislative power should be exercised by Congress and not by another branch of
0: government. You know, there's another legal principle that's often talked about in the same breath uh, as uh, as environmental regulation, and that's called the Chevron deference or the Chevron doctrine, and it's rooted in a 1984 Supreme Court decision. Can you tell us about the significance of the Chevron doc, uh, Doctrine and, and why conservative jurists may be interested in limiting it?
1: Well, it goes back again to delegation and giving power to the agencies that rather than uh, having Congress uh, have, have the ultimate power over policy decisions. Uh, you know, the uh, Chevron Doctrine holds that agencies, when they're carrying out a statute, can uh, construe the terms of that statute if those if those terms are ambiguous, and that the courts uh, should uh, actually defer to those agency interpretations of ambiguous statutory terms whenever the agencies are picking reasonable interpretations. Obviously, it's not carte blanche to the agencies to interpret ambiguous statutes, but uh, it is, uh, uh, you know, the, the agencies can't do something outlandish, but as long as the agencies are reasonable, then the court should really uh, give deference to what the agency has determined. It actually is a, a principle and, and reflective of a practice that courts had engaged in for many, many decades before 1984, uh, but uh, the framework rub some conservatives a little bit uh, wrong because they uh, see that it's going back to those three basic branches of government in the original constitutional structure. It's the decision for the judiciary to decide what the law means, not to give uh, now the agencies who are not only executing the law, but as we've been talking about, have had rulemaking authority and get legislative powers. Now, essentially, Chevron, some would read, uh, is uh, giving agencies uh, judicial authority. And that rubs uh, mm. rubs conservatives wrong. Uh, you know, I think it's not a fair reading of the Chevron Doctrine. Uh, Chevron Doctrine is... Uh, uh, is much more justifiable in uh, in the delegation of authority that uh, Congress has granted to agencies sometimes this is even explicit Congress will say I give the power to the agency to define what key terms in the statute will mean but uh, often it's also implicit uh, to the uh, that the agency really is the body that Congress intended to uh, to, to have the power to to make sense of a of a complex statute. I think it, you know it is a symbolic uh, point of uh, controversy, perhaps more than a uh, a real substantive one. And and why do I say this? There is you know empirical research that looks at the degree to which agencies won cases challenging the agency action on statutory grounds before Chevron and after Chevron, and it didn't really change so so much so it's not clear that getting rid of the Chevron doctrine will necessarily uh, mm. you know mean that that courts will be uh, less deferential in fact even though uh, it you know they won't be <laughs> going forward citing the Chevron doctrine for that deference. Uh, I think uh, it, it, this is probably the one case that, and the one administrative law doctrine that's most susceptible to change or modification under the new six to three uh, conservative uh, Supreme Court, uh, it's just a question of when, probably, but again, it, it also a question of whether it will really, in fact, make a difference. Because courts are generalists, uh, and uh, even at the D.C. Circuit, which does get a lot of regulatory cases, uh, the judges recognize that they're not expert in these matters, and uh, I would expect that you know the government agencies, if they're doing their homework well. Uh, Will probably continue to get, in fact, a good bit of deference still, even if Chevron is modified or, or even uh, overruled.
0: You know, I'm curious to know how Biden's agencies might seek to navigate expected legal opposition. Will the EPA, for example, write rules differently uh, than it might if there were a more liberal court? You know,
1: I don't, I don't know that that. Uh... I mean, they they will pay much more attention to the textual support in the statutes and making textually based arguments. But but, but to a large extent, that has been the case for for many many years. So, I, I think the you know the general advice is to today do what EPA has tried to do in years past, and that is uh, you know make a sound decisions and justify them well and uh, pay attention to the statutory arguments uh, at issue.
0: I've Got a couple more questions here for you. Let let me ask you this. Um, In recent years, this is kind of a a related issue. um, In recent years, a number of cities have sought to sue fossil fuel companies for climate damages. Uh, And there's a related case, BP versus Baltimore, which is in front of the Supreme Court right now. In general, uh, cities prefer that the cases be tried in state court while the companies have often sought to have jurisdiction shifted to the federal level. Why is it important where these cases are heard? And I think the BP versus Baltimore case is actually about, not so much about the merits of the case itself, but where it should be heard. So I w- want to get your input on that.
1: Sure. Well, the yeah, yeah there's a very technical procedural question before the court in the Baltimore case uh, that really doesn't go to the merits of the liability of oil companies for climate damages. Uh, but, you know, there have been a number of these suits. Uh, the Giuliana case is most famous. Uh, but there's, uh, I think, about, you know, 20 other cases that cities have uh, have filed uh, seeking uh Compensation from oil and gas companies for, you know, the kind of damages that are, uh, that the city's incurring, whether it's to uh, you know to address flooding or uh, other kinds of uh, of damages associated with climate change, uh, the, the federal courts haven't been receptive to these claims so far, and uh, you know I think there's. Uh, probably unlikely to, that they will be uh, going forward. So, uh, you know, lawyers who find that one uh, court or one uh, legal system, if you will, if the federal versus state legal systems, is uh, not working for you, you want to try another one. And, uh, you know, maybe state courts would be more sympathetic to the local kinds of concerns that these cities are, are bringing. So that's, that's, I think, why, why you get the, the, the litigation over these very technical questions about uh, when cases filed in the state court can be or have to be removed to federal court for deciding, and that's really the, the central issue uh, going on in the Baltimore case before the Supreme Court.
0: You know, uh, if climate change impacts become more severe and immediate as they are expected to do, um, might that influence how courts view climate-related cases? I mean, does the court, Supreme Court, or any court respond to the zeitgeist, or is this just kind of wishful thinking?
1: Well, listen, I think uh, judges are humans, and they're aware of Uh, what is happening in society. Uh, Some justices, I think, like Chief Justice Roberts, are uh, maybe more sensitive than other justices to uh, the social context within which litigation is arising and the implications that that context might hold for the legitimacy of the court and its decisions. Uh, You know, I... I I don't know that the zeitgeist around uh climate change is likely to dramatically affect uh judges partly because the zeitgeist around climate you know is not necessarily uh dramatically affecting even you know public sentiments people still are uh you know not it's a hard hard climate's a kind of a hard issue to to mobilize around. Uh, it's first of all an abstraction in a way. sure, sure we can we can see events like a winter storm that knocks out power in Texas. That's very dramatic but you know storms have been a, around for a while. in 2011 Texas had I think an earlier uh, storm that knocked out power in significant sections of the state. Uh, in, in some ways, with climate, we're all like the proverbial frog in the pot of water, and uh, it's slowly creeping up. So I don't know that uh, you know we will see uh, uh, you know a severe, profound disru- disjuncture uh, among the way the courts approach these issues. Uh, just because uh, the planet keeps getting warmer and we deal with the problems associated with it, it's not likely to, I think, factor in uh, significantly. Uh, and, you know, I think at the end of the day, if, if it factors in, it's indirect because people care about climate change and people elect representatives in Congress and they elect a president and uh, it, the actions that those political branches take, uh, you know, if, if, again, if there's legislative support for regulation, uh, even conservative justices by their own, uh, you know, their own principles would say, okay, that's fine. It's authorized by Congress. Uh, what we were worried about is agencies going off and, and making laws uh, instead of the
0: Congress doing that. Kerry, thanks for talking. Thank you Andy, always good to talk. Today's guest has been Carrie Colonisi. Director of the Penn Program on Regulation at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. If you enjoyed this podcast, you may also like other episodes, all of which are available on the Climate Center's website and on Apple Podcasts. We have a recent episode into the potential and challenges of carbon dioxide removal. There's our podcast on corporate America's big push into renewable energy. And we have a recent episode on the role that the Treasury Department and its new secretary, Janet Yellen, will play in the Biden administration's comprehensive effort to address climate change. You can get updates on all the latest insights from the Climate Center by subscribing to our monthly newsletter on our homepage. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.